0: Uh, hey Twitter, I'm Maya Hawk. I play Robin on Stranger Things and I'm here today on am to dm to talk about that and some other projects. Uh, see you on the timeline.
1: <laughs> Good
2: morning Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She's Sylvia Obel. It's Finally Friday, and you are watching AM to DM, and Maya Hawk just learning what it means to see you on the timeline there. So I also love that you made her do all the work for that. cold up, and you
1: just sat there and smiled. <laughs> I was like, there, yeah, you made her do all Art! the work. I was like, I just
2: every morning,
1: like, let me just have a break. Well, I'm just gonna yeah. sit here and be cute. Exactly. It. Yeah. Well, this was actually a very blessed Friday indeed. Do you know why? Why? Because Drake just dropped a compilation album of his most classic (laughs) singles that never made it on any album. We like to call them Lucy's, you know, like, Cigarettes, mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. is a the metaphor there. But he put them into one tidy care package that is literally called care package. Literally called care His package. His attention to detail is just... Yes. Which it seems like <laughs> the right thing to do after this week that has felt so long because of the debates. Let me tell you, it was like Drake was looking over from Canada and was like, <laughs> my American fans, I saw the debates, or at least I saw y'all tweet about them on Twitter. And y'all need this. Y'all yeah. need this little care package for me on this here Friday. And he gave it to us. And it just feels like my skin is clear, my mind is at peace. I We're all very emotional because of some of his, it's all of his most emotional tracks. Yeah. So it's really just kind of crazy. So talk about this a little more, most of his emotional tracks. Do you have any favorites so far? Yeah, I mean, Dreams, Money Can Buy was always one of my favorite Drake songs. And I love that. I feel like it got lost because it came out with Marvin's Room. He was like, he dropped those mm-hmm. two songs over the summer. And as y'all know... You listened to one of them, covered one of them. Every artist from JoJo to Tiana Tiana Taylor did that. But Dreams, Money Can Buy was always a classic for me. I Get Lonely, which is a TLC cover. Mm -hmm. Girls Love Beyonce, which has a Say My Name sample. Thank you, Beyonce, for clearing that track. (laughs) We appreciate you. I also really love um, Trust Issues. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, Paris Morton Music, I could sit here all day and name my family. It's literally like he picked that, like, Mm-hmm. Oh, let me get Sylvia's favorite songs together and give it to and, her because yeah. He's just yeah, the side the side man of my dreams. Yeah. Well, it's like boyfriend <laughs> the, oh, the side man. Well, there's always something about nostalgia yes. and music
2: especially that can just take you back to that moment. So when it came out, very comforting. yeah. It's like very, it's comforting. very
1: comforting. Like every it's track I'm like, "Oh, I remember this song. Oh, I remember this song." It yeah. was all college for me at least. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, here's a tweet from Tolly. Drake, you piece of shit,
2: it's hot girl summer. You have no right, no fucking right, to bring this album out and
1: ruin everything. How dare you? I mean, truly. He really was like, I'ma put a, in that he, it's like, he saw we were in the fourth quarter of a really lit hot girl summer and he was like, How can I get and everybody and now back in their feelings and thinking about their exes again and this is it? Is that like a Drake move to do that in like the fourth quarter of a yeah, Hot it's Girl very, Summer? It's very Drake. I yeah. mean, it's also like he was like last season summer he gave us nice for what and in mm-hmm. my feelings. He gave you know, he kind of helped us kind of, but then now he's like, All right, that's enough. <laughs> but what I will say is that at least it's equal opportunity because the men on my timeline are going through it They're like, no, I can't listen to this shit. I'm sorry. No, 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 That's my that's my masculinity voice. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Please. Well, emotions aside, Drake's ability to drop an album of old songs that can still hold their own on today's charts is quite a flex. Bansky tweeted. Are we calling this uh, an album? Because if so, Drake has a classic now. Here to break this down more with us is Jameer Pond. Good
3: morning. Good morning, all. How are you? Oh. Happy, happy hot girl summer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you as you. well. Okay. Thank you. You, feel so I mean, I don't know where you guys were. You
4: know, like, I mean, you were up, but you know that's that's up for debate. I know Drake yeah, really acted
1: <laughs> like the light-skinned man he is, trying to win in the fourth <laughs> quarter. Like this is the NBA finals all over again.
2: Boy, crazy. <laughs> Well, let's jump into this. Uh, we got to know. Do you think *Care Package* is now one of Drake's best albums?
3: I wouldn't call it an album, but it's definitely a great collection of songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys hit it on the nail perfectly. It's uh, those things and those uh, those albums that make you touch your heart a little, <laughs> especially as a man. You know, speaking that low, Drake voice. oh man, Give me a <laughs> I just ah uh, ah. Uh, mm. No. Mm. Yeah, it's that, yeah. you know, it, it invokes that feeling and um, Drake is really good at that he's so strategic every time you're mad at him he's like the boyfriend that brings you back your favorite food and so (laughs) just throws it at you you're like okay I guess I like it this is great Polynesian sauce. Oh, I love Mm. (laughs) them Polynesian (laughs) sauce. I
1: hate Jameer what a metaphor that was (laughs) so do you if you don't think that this do you think that Drake already had a classic album because to say that this is now finally Drake's classic album Mm -hmm. is really a shady way of saying the other ones aren't i know i for instance think take care is a classic album but how about you
3: i would also agree that take care is a classic album a lot of people have debates whether drake does have a classic body of work we're just talking body of work i think so far gone is definitely in the conversation but if you're talking strictly albums i would say take care a lot of people don't think like that though
1: Hmm. i don't know a lot of people you know common sense ain't common
2: (laughs) right
3: right well
1: talk (laughs) to us about care package what
2: are
3: some of your favorite tracks Oh man, Jodeci's back—the Jodeci freestyle. <laughs> how about now? How about I love, I love, I love a good high girl. You thought you had what you had, but now how about now? Because I'm up right now. Um, I love, I, I love uh, girls of Beyonce as well. Paris, Morton music. I mean, it's a great body of work. Shout out to Drake, man.
1: Truly, I feel like I know Paris at this point. Right, She's we like no friends. Oh hey, girl! <laughs> <laughs> I remember when he was thinking about you every mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, these, why do you think it is that, you know, Drake really has, he has, this album has us tweeting about how emotional we are. It has this. it's like, take, why do you think Drake has the ability, his music has the ability to take us back to a certain time, mm-hmm. place, person? But yeah. like, I think he's really one of those artists who managed to, like, really pierce into the millennial mm-hmm. emotional system in mm-hmm. a way that a lot of people don't
3: you. Yeah. Well, I think you have to look at Drake's been out for a while now. And like you were saying, a lot of our high school years, our college years, we were caught up in that Drake wave. Uh, And it just, it, it was the first moments of love for some of us, first moments for heartbreak. So we'll always be tied to Drake. He's so good at kind of bringing back those moments and those feelings through his music, because we've been on the ride along with him, for so long, like t- ten plus years, at this point now, so we got to celebrate that, and we also have to celebrate the fact that he has changed the game in a way where every artist that has come out has been somewhat influenced by Drake. Whether it was like the the, the trap R and B scene, or the just people who talk real slow during interludes. Oh man, you know, I really, I really love her, but I don't know if I do. Like those things are very Drake esque. So we have to just, you know. We gotta give Drake his flowers. You may love him, you may hate him. You gotta give him his flowers,
1: right? And another thing that I want to touch on is like strategically the decision to drop this album now—a summer where you know it's rare to go a summer without a Drake album. He dropped Scorpion last summer, and I do think um, it's one of those. It's his deal was over after his album last summer. So, do you think he, it's strategic for him to be dropping this new music now in any kind of way? He also just gave us So Far Gone on streaming earlier this year.
3: Yeah, I think Drake is very strategic, uh, very smart about marketing the way like he he uses his music. Uh, a lot of people were alluding that Take Care Two was going to come out because of Care Package and Care and Take Care, you know. Ooh, so I like it could, could you know, I don't know, but <laughs> if this is what he thinks is classic, is I think it's a great uh, fuel up for Take Care Two. Um, I don't know, though. Like, Drake, you know, Drake get a little petty. You see people blowing up on the scene. you like, oh, y'all can't just blow up. Let me let me throw my little music out there a little bit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I want to read a, a tweet now. Reek tweeted, this man going to get a number one album off Lucy's since nothing else is dropping this week, too. I'm crying. Do you think this album or collection can go number one? Is it one of the best rap albums of the year? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I wouldn't call it a rap album because I'm 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 crying against a window with I wouldn't call it rap, but <laughs> of course it's going to go number one. You know, again, Drake has been out so long. There's people who probably haven't even heard the Lucys or the, or the underground singles a lot. So a lot of people think this is new music, and oh, they're going to keep playing, heart. playing, playing, playing. Right? Don't it make you feel old a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> I like love what? It. what? Yeah, do you feel? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can't go number one though. I'm pretty sure it will.
1: Yeah, right. well, thanks so much for joining us, Jameer. Try not to let this ruin your hot boy summer, okay?
3: <sighs> it's already done. It's already done. about to commit to somebody I don't love right now.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> I'm about to on that to note, somebody yeah. I don't love. is like the tagline for every Drake Oh, my gosh. <laughs> thanks, All right, Jameer. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline
2: now. Do you think *Care Package is already Drake's classic album? Tweet us using the hashtag,
1: AM2DM. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Busby News reporter Zoe Tillman. That the 83 ethics complaints against Justice Brett Kavanaugh have been dismissed for good. A panel concluded he fell outside of the review process once he was confirmed to SCOTUS. Congress could investigate, but hasn't done anything to date. Herb New tweeted, Kavanaugh stopped being covered by the federal judiciary's internal ethics
2: review system the moment he was confirmed to former Justice Anthony Kennedy's seat in October. Zoe Tillman is joining us now to talk about this story. Good morning.
5: Good morning, guys.
2: So what were the complaints against Kavanaugh?
5: There were a lot. And a lot of them were related to the allegations that his uh, high school peer, Christine Blasey Ford, raised when she came forward and accused him of being involved in uh, sexually assaulting her when they were in high school at a house party. Um, But they weren't just about that. They were about um, how he responded to those allegations when he went on TV and angrily railed against Democrats and the Clintons and went on sort of this partisan rant There were also complaints accusing him of lying about other parts of his record, going back to the Bush administration. Um, So there were really a flurry of ethics complaints against him while he was going through and after the confirmation process. Mm. And do you, why, if he
1: had not been confirmed for Supreme Court justice, how would this have played out differently?
5: So all of the lower court judges, basically all of the federal courts below the Supreme Court, are all subject to an internal ethics review process. There are panels of judges that investigate these complaints. Um, They might bring in an independent investigator if it's high profile enough. There is a a relatively formal process that, um, that takes place for all lower court judges, which is what Brett Kavanaugh was until he was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, So there might still be an investigation, there might not, we don't know. But what happened is, the moment he was confirmed, everything stopped. The entire process ground to a halt, and multiple panels of judges have concluded that the rules just don't apply when it comes to the justices.
2: Okay, so the rules just don't apply to the justices, so who now could take action on that?
5: It's really up to Congress. Congress can impeach Supreme Court justices, and that's about the only accountability that we have in our system for them. The Supreme Court doesn't have its own ethics review process. They fall outside of any other system that might exist. There's no inspector general. There's no one else there looking at this. Um, But impeachment is an extraordinary remedy. It's maybe a, a handful of times in the history of the judiciary when they've done that, and it's been for pretty extraordinary crimes. So, you know, notwithstanding how fierce the opposition was to Kavanaugh, as of now, we just haven't seen any movement on the Hill or any desire to get enmeshed in that. So there's really no system of accountability when it comes to the Supreme Court. Hmm.
1: And what are watchdog groups and other people on the Hill saying about the dismissal itself? Do they, you know, as far as they think it's, Mm -hmm. are they reacting the same way the public Uh, is reacting to it? Or are they, is there like inaction just? Telling how they feel.
5: Watchdog groups are really ticked off. Um, They were counting on Democrats when they took control of the House to do something about this. You know, you heard so much from Democrats during the confirmation hearings about how they were going to continue to hold them accountable. They were going to look at how Republicans and how the White House handled Christine Blasey Ford's allegations, how all of that went down. Um, and we saw a letter from a coalition of legal groups on the left in April to Congress saying, guys, you're there, you're in charge, what are you doing? And they're just it's been silence coming from the Hill so far.
2: Mm. Um, you mentioned Christine Blasey Ford's name. Uh, what has she been up to in the past couple of months? Uh, I feel like I have not heard uh, about her as much.
5: She has been trying really hard to have no one hear about her in the past couple months. Um, After she came forward, she and her family were subject to all sorts of threats, death threats. They had to leave their house. She had to step away from her teaching job. She's a biostatistician in California. Um, And so they really tried to stay out of the spotlight. And as last we heard, Earlier this year, she was still uh, back doing research and working with students, but it's not clear if she's teaching again, what she's doing, um, if she's you know putting herself out there again in any sort of public way, if she's been able to return home. We just don't know. But a lot of that is by design. Um, her lawyers told us that they really feared for her safety.
1: Yeah, I think this goes to speak about why nobody does this for right the exactly. Yeah, because it's really it makes your it's makes your life. Hell, you're know, everything, like, everything to yeah. lose. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is an example of that, and it's really unfortunate. But I'm um, Zoe. Thanks for joining us. Sure thing.
2: Whew. Well, coming up, you'll see my interview with Stranger Things breakout star Maya Hawk. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. tweets. And I want to read this tweet from uh, Cini Martinez who says, don't have central air, so I've only had a hot bra summer. Relatable. Not <laughs> the central air part,
1: but I can understand how that might all blend yeah, together. Yeah. We're praying for you, Seth. We, we are. We are. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. All right. Let's get into these. <laughs> Ebony, you tweeted, data
2: breaches everywhere except the student loan sites. Useless. To which I
1: say, absolutely useless. Why have the hackers not come for our student debt? So rude. No real humanitarians in this country. No real, like, no real heroes. Where's the hacker (laughs) hero I need in my life? Yes. That's all I want? Selfish. It's just selfish. (laughs) All right. Lance, you tweeted, no one. My mom in church when the pastor is talking about disobedient children. (laughs) I'm looking at you, mom, while reading this tweet, mom, because... Because. Bringing home good grades, behaving, and still... Clapping as if you're going through it. I don't understand. I don't understand. Relatable tweet. There
2: you go. Gabriel, you tweeted. Why is every Reddit relationship question like, I, female, age 29, love my fiance, male, age 34, except whenever we fight, he takes a dump in the living room, then makes me refer to his dump as Mr. Hoskins and apologize to it. Am I overreacting? Our wedding is in six hours. I am <laughs> repulsed by everything about this entire tweet. It's gross. I hate it. I hate... I just And also, in general, Reddit relationship questions somehow are always, like, the weirdest, most disgusting, offensive thing. And then we're getting married
1: in minutes. Reddit is the weirdest place on the... It's one of the strangest places on the internet. It's really a dark place. You know, like in The Lion King when Mufasa's, like where everything in the lights, <laughs> is ours, but that dark shadowy place don't yes, go there, that's yeah, Reddit. That's Reddit. Reddit is that dark shadowy place that you don't go to, okay, Indeed. Simba? All right. Kyrie, <laughs> <laughs> you tweeted, we all literally just pretend to know what engineering is and no one ever questions it. I don't know what engineers do. Are there, like, bioengineers? You can be—what other kind of engineers? You can be um, chemical, civil, civil, agricultural, I think. Um, I know the ones who put cities together. And this is really a shame because I went to North Carolina A&T, which is the number one producer of black engineers in the country. And still don't really know what engineers do. I know they make a lot of money. And I know it takes about six years to graduate. That's it. A-
2: so, <laughs> sounds like a scam of some sort. But isn't you know? it a scam if
1: you make the money after? No, it's not. It's just like we should figure we just, out. We what should it just is. figure out what it is. All Why are right. there so many types? Why are there so many types? Know. All right, ready for Tweet
2: of the Day? Yeah. Okay. Tweet of the Day comes from Tyler <laughs> Tarantino, this, Tarantino, that. How about y'all tear into some job applications? <laughs> yeah, Everybody talking about Tarantino. <laughs> and I have to confess, we're about to talk about Tarantino, too.
1: But we have jobs. But we have jobs. So there's that. So that makes it so okay. how about you tear some <laughs> job applications, okay? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, you get to see Alex's sit-down with actor Maya Hawke from the new season of Stranger Things. But up next, we are talking to BuzzFeed culture writer Allison Wilmore about Quentin Tarantino. Part of the problem. Here's a tweet from Villanelle. Everyone, hey, Quentin Tarantino, please stop showing women being brutalized in various ways in your films. Quentin Tarantino, show some more women being brutally murdered, but uh, they're murderers, so it's justified. So, gotcha, LOL, what are you going to do?
2: We're talking about Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has reignited conversations about female characters in his films. Buzzfeed, BuzzFeed news reporter Allison Wilmore took a deep dive into the subject, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So, how did the latest iteration of this conversation about women in Tarantino films get started?
4: Yeah, it's definitely been one that's been there since the beginning. You know, he's had multiple controversies that have always come up whenever he has a new movie. And this time around, it was really kind of kickstarted by uh, the Cannes Film Festival, where the movie had its premiere, huge standing ovation. And then a reporter who writes for the New York Times asked basically, like, why does Margot Robbie have so few lines? And rather than answer that, and I think there are a lot of ways he could have answered that that are like just, you know, about how you measure a role. He was like, I reject the hypothesis of your question. And just kind of, you left Margot Robbie to have to pick up the slack and try and answer. And that really reignited for a lot of people this old conversation about, like, how does he handle women characters? Does he have full-fleshed-out women characters? Is he too violent to them? And I think we're back kind of, like, looking back at a lot of his older films in
1: addition to this new one. Yeah, well, let's get into the char- some of these female characters. Why do you think that he is actually invested about writing movies, women in movies, as you say in your story?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's so difficult about him is that there's no one way to pin him down. I think Mm -hmm. all of his stuff avoids being painted with just one broad brush. And I think it's hard to look at something like Jackie Brown or Mm -hmm. Kill Bill and be like, yeah, he doesn't care about female characters. Because those are like really kind of fully fleshed out, Uh, especially Jackie Brown, which is kind of his least inflammatory movie, (laughs) uh, you know, is really it was his comeback vehicle for Pam Greer and it's just a kind of great character study. I think it, he's a tough one because he has done great things and then also has these huge blind spots that he has like never gotten better at and has kind of refused to
2: even kind of listen to criticism about. Can you talk about what some of those uh, spots are? Uh, Were there moments where he just really missed the mark? Well, I think the big thing is just the
4: way he portrays violence against women. He portrays violence against everyone, right? His movies are kind of lavishly, extravagantly violent. But I think he kind of, he doesn't, show any realization that maybe violence against women can be more loaded than violence against men, you know, that violence against people of color can have, like, more baggage and also be received differently than, than violence against white people. I think that, like, you have uh, someone who has just kind of treated this everyone with this kind of, like, equal opportunity, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're able to inflict violence and receive it. But I think when then you end up watching something like the end of this movie, which involves a very, I won't spoil, it but involves like a really kind of like prolonged scene of just like indulgent violence against women you're like well whether these characters deserve it or not is one question but just like when you're sitting in a theater with people who are just laughing and laughing about what happens to these like young girls I think he doesn't want to deal with that discomfort
1: and you you know you mentioned some of the cultural shifts and things that have happened to shape the way we look at these things some of them have always been there some of them are newer can you talk about how me too has also impacted how we view Quentin Tarantino movies Sure you know I think me too brought out two
4: in particular big stories about Quentin Tarantino not as a sexual harasser or abuser but just a guy who was willing to like let he knew about Harvey Weinstein by his own admission, had heard stories, including from like women he had relationships with and still kind of kept collaborating with him, you know, and kind of chose his work over the well-being of women. And then there was also the story from Uma Thurman about how she felt pressured by him to do this stunt, essentially this driving stunt that ended with her crashing and getting seriously injured. And he, you know, attempted to brush it over despite the fact that she had asked him, can I please not do this? Can I please not do this? So I think. You know, Me Too has brought up a lot of examinations, how we look at workplaces and women and who is allowed to kind of get away with this behavior. And I think in the light of that, Quentin Tarantino, maybe not like one of the men who has gotten, you know, like Harvey Weinstein, I think is just this figure who has been kind of shown as complicit or at least willing to choose himself and his work over the women that he's
2: collaborated with. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that he did not have a good answer uh, when he was asked about uh, the lack of lines that Margarabi Robbie has in uh, this film. Um, how have you seen uh, people who are really invested in his filmmaking, how have you seen them uh, grapple with, uh, I guess, the dearth of challenges uh, that, that have come out against his work? Um, and just, you know, how are they making sense of all this?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, this movie has, like, torn film Twitter apart. But I think also <laughs> uh, his fandom is, I think, in some ways, like, more baggage for him than his movies themselves because people who are into his movies uh, can be really toxic and be really, really defensive of him and can, you know, when you see him give an answer like the one he gave to the reporter at Cannes, I started seeing that pop up in people's Twitter bios in the way you would see someone be like, not for the easily offended and just like, that's not a good sign. <laughs> if that's how your fandom is receiving that, then, like, you miscalculated. That is a misstep. And I think, you know, with this movie... Uh, There's been a lot more pushback because there's social media is a much bigger thing than like certainly when he was getting started in the 90s. But I think you also see a lot more people just being willing to kind of echo his behavior and just be like, shut up. Like he doesn't have to be held accountable for these
2: things. Well, damn. I mean, that tells you everything that you need to know. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of Quentin Tarantino's female characters? Tweeting us using the hashtag AM2DM. I think it's really complicated. I, I got my tickets to go see this okay, movie, so to I'm going to go okay. see it. So, yeah.
1: I'm yeah. going to wait till I can watch it at home because it's probably be five hours long. <laughs> Fair. But I will. <laughs> well, speaking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, later Alex is sitting down with actor Maya Hawk. She's in the movie.
2: During Wednesday night's Democratic primary debate, Zach Ford tweeted, a second protest disruption, calling out Biden for the Obama administration's three million deportations.
3: I never heard him talk about any of this when he was the secretary. Three
6: million Please, Please be respectful. Please be respectful in the crowd.
2: I'm joined now by one of the activists who participated in this protest for Movimiento Cosecha, Ophelia. Good morning. Good morning. So this wasn't your first time uh, that your organization has protested the Biden campaign. Um, what was the goal of the chance on Wednesday night?
7: So the goal was for them to, to recognize that we haven't forgotten what has happened. Uh, so right now, the crisis is everything. like they're, they're trying to blame the Republicans, Republican Party right now for the crisis that's happening on the southern border. But that's been going on since the Obama administration since before. So for, for the Democrats to recognize that this happened under their party, but they were quiet about it, and but that we know this happened under their party, and we want them to recognize it.
2: Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be in the room uh, on Wednesday night when you actually protested? Of course, we heard the CNN moderator chime in. Um, you know, what was it like? <laughs> Walk us through uh, what happened there.
7: So um, I was very nervous. Uh, waiting for them to hit the the topic on immigration but prior me doing my action they there were some black Lives matters activists there that were escorted out as well so that gave me a little bit more of the of the push to um go through with what my plan was so uh, i waited for specifically biden to to speak on immigration Uh, and so then when that was like my cue and when he did, I approached as close as I could get to the to the, uh, to the stage. I had a reboso with a message that said, stop all deportations on day one. And I was started to chant three million deportations. And as I was doing that, another one of my activist um, members was on the other side and she chimed in as well. We both had the same message on a, on a reboso. Mm.
2: As you're doing this, uh, what was your sense of the reactions that were actually in the room? Uh, you know, were you able to make eye contact with anyone once you moved, anything like that?
7: So I, I didn't. Uh, my face was kind of covered when I was holding up the banner. Uh, and I, I feel when I left, too, I didn't make eye contact with many people. I kind of walked out uh, with my head down just a little bit in quiet. Uh, I know the reaction from the crowd <laughs> wasn't uh, positive, uh, but I was there because it needed to be done. So.
2: Have you heard from anyone from Biden's campaign since the debate?
7: No. So we actually did another action in Philly a few weeks ago when we shut down Biden's uh, campaign office and nor there did anybody receive us. Did we get a statement? No one came down. Um, We weren't addressed at all. And so I'm pretty sure he knows it was us again this time. But from what I know, the movement in a whole has not received anything from Biden's office or from the Democratic Party.
2: Hmm. Now, since the debates, a number of prominent Democrats have spoken out uh, to defend President Obama, including former Attorney General Eric Holder, who tweeted, to my fellow Democrats, be wary of attacking the Obama record, build on it, expand it. But there is little to be gained for you or the party by attacking a very successful and still popular Democratic president. What's your response to that?
7: (laughs) Um, I I think... We don't want to continue that legacy. Yes, in in the sense he was a a, a a good person because that's what he showed to the to the to the press to the media. Obviously, he wasn't hysterical and saying nonsense like like forty five right now. But it, they still they still have that under their party under their belt. Um, still under the Democratic Party, there were three million family separations. There were three million deportations, and no one talked about it. They kept it quiet. So that's why I feel a lot of people give them that praise because they don't know about that aspect about immigration under the, the Obama Biden administ- administration. So we wanna change that narrative. We don't want Obama's legacy to be continued in the sense of immigration or other, other policies. Um, we want it to be better, we want it to be different, and we want it to, to benefit the community that it's, it's affecting, that it's targeted to.
2: Mm. What do you make of the other candidates' immigration plans? Is there anything that you'd like to see them uh, doing differently?
7: So I didn't get to hear all of them. <laughs> um, I had left and I tried to follow up later, but it was hard for me to find footage. I did hear some stuff about um, Castro, what he was saying, uh, even though he was still under the Obama administration, that he learned um, some mistakes and what not to do. So what, what we want to hear from, the, from the, the Democratic Party is not what had happened in the past or what's going on. Like, what are you going to do to change it? What's going to be different under your administration for the undocumented population in this country?
2: Hmm. Well, Ophelia, thank you so much for joining me this morning.
7: No problem. Thank you.
2: And up next, you get to see my sit-down with Stranger Things actor, Maya <laughs> Welcome back. Here's a tweet from Leo. Robin Buckley is one of the best Stranger Things characters. She's only one season in, but she's rocking it. She's got humor and she's pretty badass. We stand a queen. Joining me now is the actor who brought that queen to life in season three of Stranger Things, Maya Hawk. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have to say, when I said you were coming on the show, I was absolutely flooded with tweets and people were just so excited for this. Um, So I have to ask you, when you were joining such an established cast and a show with such a big fandom, did you have any trepidation?
0: Yeah, I was super nervous. I mean, you know, there are so many beloved characters on that show. I love all the characters on that show, and to think that it would be possible to bring in a new character and have them integrate well and have them add and not detract from the magic em- energy that that cast has was risky and nerve-wracking and I-, I was worried but then I got there and I got to my screen test and the Duffer brothers were so collaborative and welcoming and Joe who I screen tested with was so funny and fun to work with and I just like my nerves had to be put aside because it just seemed like it was going to be such a great experience. Mm.
2: Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, wanting to add to the kind of belovedness of the show. And I mean, Robin really resonates with so many people. Um, I want to read a a tweet from a fan, Selena Ray, who said, Robin is the first confirmed LGBTQ plus character in the show. Um, And how important was it to you to be really honest about your portrayal of her? Was that something that you were thinking about at
0: all? Yeah, I mean, a lot. Between, you know... The significance of the fact that this show is so popular that it airs not only all over America, in red states and blue states, but all over the world. And it's you can kind of find whatever show you want to find if you go looking for it, but with these big mainstream shows, to have diverse characters, to have LGBTQ diverse characters on the show is really important because it puts them right into the living room of people all over who might have different opinions than you or might have different feelings about it. on screen, sometimes we have more empathy for characters than we do for people. And if you can open up and and love a character and, and then love them for being their true selves, maybe it could help somebody open their heart to loving real people and their next door neighbor. And um, So it was really important to me and it was important to do just justice to her and justice to the time period and the significance of what that would be like in the 80s. And so I did a lot of reading and research and talking to my parents about... I don't know what it was like then for young uh, gay youth. And uh, yeah, it was really, really important.
2: Yeah, somehow I um, evaded all of the spoilers around that. So um, when I got to that episode, I was it was just so amazing. It was so moving to watch that. How much did you know going into filming the season that that was where things were going to end up?
0: It was always a question mark for in the beginning, the first couple episodes. And we had a lot of meetings and a lot of conversations about what the best journey was for Robin, what the most truthful journey was, and we ended up deciding that that, that was just who she was. Like if you saw, if I don't know, I, I think that if you go from the beginning of the season you can feel it in, in her. Like she, she's she got these kind of walls that are up and this toughness. And then as she goes through the journey, she becomes more and more vulnerable and more and more herself. And uh, I don't know, I just, just felt really true to her. Mm. And um, that's, so that was the decision we ended up all making.
2: Mm. I want to read this tweet from uh, Caroline Framke, who says, all I'm saying that is if Joe Keery and Maya Hawk went a Stranger Things spinoff, I will be there. Would you have a dream spin-off with Joe Keery? What would that be like?
0: I have no idea. I mean, it would probably—I I, I I love working with Joe. He's so funny. He's so smart. He's so focused. And uh, I, I can't imagine what the spinoff would be. I feel like it's so special to be within the world of Stranger Things and within the world of all those other characters. But I'm game, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking
2: of being in the world, Matt Silverman tweeted, Honestly, the scariest scene in Stranger Things 3 is Steve and Robin touching the floor of a movie theater bathroom. Um, And I actually saw that these scenes were shot in an old mall. Was this also... Uh, shot in that same old mall space.
0: No, I mean, if you notice, like that bathroom is so beautiful and so well-designed and the Duffer Brothers constructed, I mean, we were in the mall, but they constructed a kind of fake set bathroom to shoot that scene in because there were some really specific shots of going overhead over the stalls and the feet and the doors and the colors and it was all really specifically planned and, and carefully organized. And so that was a set, but we were in a mall. Did, did being in the actual mall, did that like help you get in that kind of 80s? Totally. I mean, mood? the whole thing was totally set up like a, like an 80s mall. I mean, every 80s gap, the Orange Julius, I mean, everything was was right there the way it would have been. Now, A lot of people
2: were um, moved by something that your parents posted um, in support of your role. Um, your dad wrote on Instagram, um, some of you may have missed her in last year's BBC production of Little Women. Some of you may have missed her work at Juilliard. I I know many missed out uh, on numerous high school productions. Heck, I even missed a few, and I'm her father. Some of you may know her music, some may not, but ladies and gentlemen, get to know Maya hawk She's the real thing. Um, have you learned anything about navigating public life from your parents?
0: Yeah, um, I have. I mean, I, I got, I've got i gotten to watch them go through navigating both being an artist and then being a public person, public personality my whole life. And that's something a lot of young people who go into this business don't have the privilege of doing. And it's really a huge advantage and privilege because this part is hard. Um, like, this isn't the part that you go into it that you're in love with, you know? It's not the thing you did at school. It's not the, it's different and it's hard and you have to be yourself in front of people and and you open yourself up to a lot of criticism and so that's really hard. But they set a wonderful example and gave me a lot of information and a lot of uh, advice and like, leading by their example and also like what not to do. And so, um, it was, it was really, it was really helpful. What was the moment that you realized you wanted to be an actor? Um, I always loved acting. I did every school play, every acting summer camp, everything. But I was a little hesitant to go into it professionally. I I didn't want to ever do it as a child. And, um, I was because I kind of, because I knew so much, um, about the other parts of the world. And, um, I also had a lot of other passions and things I liked to do, but, At a certain point in my junior year in high school when everyone was like applying to college and taking the SAT, I was doing a school play and I was like, this is the only thing that makes me really, really happy. This is the only place I feel myself and it just seemed like life is complicated enough. Why not try to pick the career that makes you feel the best, so
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about some of your other work as well., um, and you were just at the premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I did play go to one that. of, yeah, you play one of Charles, Charles Manson's followers, right? Um, yes. how much uh, how did you acquaint yourself with um, everything that
0: happened with uh, manson? well, i um I've always been in love with that era. Um, with the music, with the clothing, with the films. And so I had a certain familiarity with kind of the bright side of that era. And then what I had to do to get ready for that film was acquaint myself with the dark side. And there was a lot of wonderful material. That book, The Girls, um, some great documentaries about the time of the Mansons and some great newspaper articles from that time. So I just kind of delved into that history and read a lot about it so that I would have a good understanding of, of the kind of deep corruption and manipulation and and scariness that was going on in that time.
2: Hmm. There are so many amazing people in that film, and you've worked with so many amazing people already. Is there anyone who's really on your radar um, that you're hoping to work with?
0: I don't know. There are so many people I want to work with. There are so many talented actors working these days. Since I was, like, a little girl, I've always dreamed of working with Meryl Streep. But, like, who hasn't? I mean, who amongst us? That's not really an an original idea. So... um, but I, I don't know, I'm excited to work with anyone who's excited to, to, to work. Yeah, uh. um, and you have you have another film coming
2: out later this week called Lady World. Yes. I understand it's about teenage girls who get trapped at a birthday
0: party after an earthquake. It seems like there could be some parallels between Stranger Things. Well, it's you know, it's kind of inspired by Lord of the Flies, and it's a little bit more about how, when we're confined, the darkest parts of our psychology come out. But the amazing thing about making it was though— It was kind of about the the dark side of kind of confined female energy and that sort of manipulative high school and middle school, like sleepover girl energy. What it ended up, the experience of making it was probably one of the most collaborative uh, female-driven experience of my life. Amanda Kramer, the director, is an unbelievably talented young woman who just set up a set that was so creative. She shot most of it in a wide, and so we were all just acting the scene all the way through every time and, and it was just a really beautiful creative space, and the movie has a really high level of drama and play, and I think people will really like it. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, unfortunately, we are just about out of time, but I have to ask you before we go. Anything um, you want. Yeah, so when I when I was tweeting out that you came on, I saw there are so many people in costumes of uh, your Stranger Things character. Are you mentally prepared for all of uh, these Scoops Ahoy outfits we're going to see at Halloween? Uh...
0: I think I am partially mentally prepared. I've I've seen a lot of costumes of a lot of family members of mine walking around the street at Halloween parties. um, In my life, myself will be scarier, but uh, I'm actually just really excited. I I love the people, love the costume. I love the people, love the character. And I hope that this Halloween, they have fun dressing up as Robin and Steve as I did.
2: Yes, well, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me. It's really nice to
2: meet you. Yes, you too. And you, of course, can watch Stranger Things on Netflix and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is... In theaters. Now, more Am to is coming up next.
1: Brittany Cottrell tweeted: These children stress me out. Hashtag Euphoria. HBO's Euphoria has been made has made quite an impression on all of us as viewers, but senior columnist for the Shadow League, Karan J. Phillips, writes: it also has the educational system in a panic. Karan joins me now. Hi.
6: Hello. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So the experiences in Euphoria do not look anything like my own from high school. I watch it like, wow, these kids are wild in the day. How close does Euphoria come to showing what today's high school experience is like?
6: Well, from my research, this is a very accurate portrayal. Like I'm in the same boat as you, Sylvia. Like I'm, I'm turning 36 this year. I heard all the hype around this show. I jumped on like uh, a, a couple of days after the uh, pilot dropped to tune in and see what all the fuss was about. And immediately I just had like the shock and awe that everyone else had. And like I had a line in my column. I was just like, is this really what kids are dealing with? This is a lot. Um, and, you know, in, in, in talking to teachers and educators and, um, you know, reading some of, you know, the commentary on social media and reaching out to other educators I know right now who are in my age group, to parents. Um, and it, like this is, I've just gotten a general sense that um, it may not be like this in every school district or every high school in every region of this country, um, but this isn't too far off of what's really happening. And in some places, this is a, a very real life portrayal of what's going on.
1: Uh, well, you tweeted the CDC lists prescription drug overdose prevention as a top five public health challenge. A school district in Texas is drug testing 12 year olds. How did schools realize that what they were seeing on TV is something they should actually be concerned with in real life?
6: Now, this, this is just the latest news, pick, And I, I believe the story came out last week where, you know, it, it kind of catches you off guard, like really like we're, we're, we're drug testing drug testing 7th graders, 12-year-olds, why are we doing this? And then the story talks about how it's not necessarily a drug problem going on in the area. Um, they're doing it as a preventative measure. But I, my question is, what does that say as a society where we have to do preventative drug, t- uh, drug testing to 7th graders? Um, there's a larger issue going on there, even if a kid is involved in activities or there isn't. Um, You can look up at some other research. There are other areas in the country where they've been doing this drug testing for nicotine, for kids smoking, and in other pockets in Texas where uh, other districts around, you know, we think of Texas as a really big state, they've been doing this as well. So the question I've just been wondering is, is where did this start? And when you kind of put the pieces together with Euphoria coming out this season, we've got the season finale on Sunday. It it makes you step back and be like, okay, uh, if school districts are doing this, and there is, you know, evidence that they've done this before, and now you have to show is art imitating life, is life imitating art, or is art controlling um, life? Because there's just a lot of questions here, and we have the information from the CDC. Uh, we, we've been talking about the opioid overdose and that crisis for years. When I was in Delaware, I had a former colleague by the name of Brittany Horn because we were right there in the Philadelphia metropolitan area with this long, huge series on the, the opioid crisis in the Philadelphia area. So this stuff has been happening for years and a long time, but you, it really makes you focus on it a different angle. When you have a TV show like this showing you how it's affecting teens and then you have a school district in Texas where it's affecting middle schoolers as well.
1: Yeah. So who do you think this show was really for? Is it for those of us who are like, oh, so this is what's going on in high school today? Or is it for Gen Z? Like this is here is your high school show. Like I feel like we all kind of had one in each decade.
6: Someone said this to me the other day and it was a really good point that, you know, kids kids of this generation, this era aren't necessarily sitting down and watching TV at 10 o'clock on HBO on Sunday nights. And that I partly agree with that because that's real. We probably have the numbers and the statistics to prove that. However, I, uh, in my point of view, for asking me, I think this show is for everybody. I think it's for people of my age and older generations as a wake-up call to see what's really going on. I think it's for teachers um, who are in those classrooms that are finally like, yes, someone can see what we deal with on an everyday basis. I think um, it could be shocking to parents or people who want to be parents and have children like this is what you need to possibly prepare for. And I think there are also some kids who are watching HBO at 10 o'clock on Sundays who are like, oh, this just this just isn't me. This just isn't my school. This is happening in other places Um, because it's not like this show and this narrative and these characters just came from nowhere. These are some real life situations happening and it's something we need to pay attention to.
1: Yeah. And we can't, I mean, you're right. We can't, and we can't ignore the huge impact this show has had on audiences. Larry Griffin Jr. tweeted, My sister got me hooked onto this show. It's so fucked up. And not for everyone, but it gives you a lot to think about. The music, cinematography, acting, and writing are all excellent. Which, you know, is true. I think for me, it's like I'm often shocked by storylines, but I'm like, this is such a good plot narrative. It's shot beautifully. The actors are all doing their thing. What storyline, or which of the storylines, stands out to you the most, or gave you the most like impacted?
6: This is a great question because in, in watching this all series, I've seen people discuss, especially on social media, who they like or who, who, who's grabbing their attention. You got Jules. Uh, you know, the transgender issue, you've got Rue um, with, with the drugs, you've got Maddie, that's domestic abuse. You got Nate Jacobs, that guy is Ooh, all over the lock place. Up. You got McKay up. with the sports <laughs> and the expectations of his father. But the the characters, plural, that I'm intrigued the most about who don't get enough shine are the parents. The parents oh. on this show are absolutely terrible. Um, every single child, you know, every week there's a different storyline. If you pay attention to the parents and then give a little bit of the backstory, it makes sense why these kids are why they are. They're lacking something for their parents or something tragic happened to them that affected them. Um, so I'm, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to sit here and bash real life parents and saying, you need to be more, you need to be more present. But if you could pay attention, um, this show was showing you that maybe if this is something that's happening in real life in today's generation or maybe this is just something on this show. The parents need to really wake up and focus and be more engaged with what's going on in their children's life, in reality and on TV. Because pay attention to every and go back and watch them all episodes. These parents are missing on some, on some triggering clues that are going on with their kids, and they're not around as much as they necessarily need to be because these kids have some real life issues, and there's a direct correlation with what's going on with their parents' lives as well.
1: For sure, for sure. I've even seen some black mothers on Twitter say, like, Rue's mother is not a realistic and there's some questioning as if it's because Zendaya maybe was a casting but it wasn't written to be a Black character or a biracial woman but it's you touched on that and that is something I've seen so thank you, Karn, for joining us.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, let's take it to the timeline. What euphoria moment blew your damn mind this season? Let us know using the hashtag am dm Don't go away. Up next, Alex and I are responding to your tweets. Welcome back. It's time for add We're almost done. We are almost done. We are, are so I can smell the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to it. Yeah. All right. Let's do this.
2: Kristen <laughs> Baptiste tweeted this following our fire tweet about data breaches. Yes, I don't believe in real hackers or gangsters no more. Yeah. I mean, we deserve no student loans. So get hey, to it. You ain't real
1: hacker. You want to impress me clear my balance there you go my student loan balance not my debit card balance <laughs> just so we're clear thank you um Cine martinez wanted to share how her week has been going she tweeted who else had a hell of a week self care put put something in the air repeat i
2: yeah i agree with that yeah yeah you know like just just put rosé right into my veins now just i just just i an because iv drip I, iv drip yeah mm. yeah very excited yes. catch up on
1: the rest catch up on everything we missed because of those debates Listen, Listen. I'm, I'm ready for a relaxing weekend. <laughs> you know, I mean, summer. We only have so many more weeks of summer left. Weekends of summer left. Ugh, <gasps> oh,
2: I don't so want to think advantage. about it. I don't even want to think about it. Well, thank you to our guests: Jameer Pond, Zoe Tillman, Allison
1: Wilmore, Orphelia, Karen Phillips, and Maya Hawk. Next week, we've got Whitney Cummings, Vanessa Kirby, Julian Moore, the cast of Dear White People, and more!
2: And Zach and I will be back here at 10 a.m. on Monday. Have a great rest of your weekend. Yes. Come back, Zach! Um, I'll miss co-hosting with you, Sylvia. I'll I'll miss miss you too, though!